What's up, guys? This is Mike. This is Dave, and you're listening to the Mike and Dave Podcast. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode 30 of the Mike and Dave Podcast. We've got an interesting show lined up for you, some returning segments. Obviously, it's an interval of five, so we're going to do a top five. The usual suspects of the hot seat, the fun fact, but I'm excited about this one. This episode is going to debut a brand new segment, and it's one that we've been talking about, at least amongst ourselves, since the inception of the Mike and Dave podcast, and we're finally pulling it out here. What if? But before any of that, we've got to do off the top, and it's Dave's turn to choose the prompt, so I'm going to kick it to him. What's up, everybody? This is Dave, and yeah, it should be a pretty exciting episode this time around. Not that they aren't all exciting, because I think that they are. Uh, but yeah, we literally were t- we were talking about what if as a segment even before we started the podcast, and now especially that uh, the NBA is drawing to a close. Obviously, NFL, college football are uh, on a break this summer. We're gonna do a couple of you know different segments and some other stuff as there aren't a whole bunch of current events happening. Uh, with stuff that we cover regularly. So definitely stick around for that. But yes, off the top. So this episode, Mike, I want you to imagine that you are talking to someone who knows the only the very basic rules of football. I'm talking like, ooh, touchdown, Tom Brady. Like, that's literally it. You have three sentences to explain football to this person and try to get them interested in it. What do you say? Okay. Are you talking about like how the game's played or like the history or just like in general? Just You're talking to someone who just knows the, the very basics of the game. But like, let's say you're trying to get them interested in like to watch a game with you. So maybe a little bit about the rules, maybe a little bit about what makes football exciting to watch, and then like, I don't know, whatever else you want to throw in there. Okay. All right. Sentence one. Your team wants to get the ball from one side to the other and stop the other team from doing so, and you can just clap when I clap. Sentence one. We've we've got scoring and cheering covered. Two essential parts of the game. Sentence two. Some crazy plays will happen. Semicolon. For example, comma. There will be some nice catches and some dudes will knock the shit out of each other. Okay, I'm just going to assume that this is the Super Bowl and say sentence three. Tom Brady is playing, so what could be better television than watching the goat of, the goat of all goats play football? Okay, that, that, that one was a little disappointing. I can't even <laughs> lie. But why? I honestly don't know why I'm surprised. Or maybe it's a Falcons game, in which case, scrap the Super Bowl, scrap the playoffs, scrap a meaningful dub, aside from maybe just like hurting the Saints' feelings. I mean, if it's a Falcons game, then you wouldn't even try to get the person <laughs> to watch it. So, 
True. Okay. At least we're not watching the Falcons. So there's a mild chance that your team, the team you arbitrarily choose to root for, will win. And on that note, we're going to end the off the top segment here. When we come back, we're going to just go ahead and and get straight into the new segment, What If? So stick around for that. All right, it's time to get into our brand new segment, What If? So the first one that we decided that we wanted to do is what if LeBron never went to Miami? And we're going to kind of break this down in a couple different ways. Uh, Mike's going to start off and he's going to talk about how like just the general landscape of the NBA would be different if he didn't do that. And then I'm going to break down kind of LeBron's career and focus on him specifically and say like, here's how his career potentially might look and um, like what his legacy looks like and all that stuff. So with all that being said, Mike, why don't you go ahead and kick it out? All right. So the first thing I want to say about LeBron leaving Cleveland to go to Miami is that a lot of people look at this as where the NBA just really like, well, in some people's minds got broken, ruined, uh, or how I see it, just where the power dynamic sort of shifted. And what I mean there is that we've seen like big crazy teams before we've seen super teams before but what separates miami i think from super teams past whether it's any iteration of celtics teams or the lakers uh early on like in the 70s 80s is that or even the bulls for that matter is that the creation of that big three in miami is the first time we really saw that being done by the players instead of by front office executives. We'd seen trades before. We'd seen good drafting before, but we hadn't really seen superstars just up and leave and then like collaborate and all go to the same place like that. And by all, I mean like Chris Bosh and uh, LeBron. But this really sparked this age of player empowerment. And so that's sort of the first angle I want to take with this. I think player empowerment is good in a certain aspect in any job i think we should have the right to like dictate what we want the sort of trajectory of our career to look like uh we should be able to have some control over where we go i i mean i i teach at a college i wouldn't want to get traded to some college in like vermont or something you know like uh to anyone who's listening in Vermont, he it was it's not personal. Don't worry. Okay, let me make it personal. I wouldn't <laughs> want to get traded. <laughs> I wouldn't want to get traded to a college in Ohio. I thought you were going to say Philadelphia, and I would have agreed. But <laughs> there are plenty of cities we don't want to go. But my point here is like, I can't really fault someone for wanting to have some control over where he or she works right especially if you're talking about a guy moving from cleveland freaking ohio to miami honestly it's a no-brainer even if you don't like the heat it's still better like come on now with that being said i think that we've gone like i think that we've hit a rough spot in terms of player empowerment uh when when the NBA does its new collective bargaining agreement, a lot of things are going to be addressed. When I look at 
situations like Ben Simmons, Kyrie Irving, um, James Harden. Like, this is sort of a uh, an extreme extension of that. Like, players having so much um, power over their situations, where they can end up, that they can sort of just, like, decide not to play in favor of like forcing a trade and i think that's going to be addressed i think that's going to get moved down but we really started to see this like desire to shape your own like trajectory uh geographically when lebron went to miami this is this sort of thing was like super rare before lebron like we really weren't seeing any sort of you know players taking control of where they went and now like in the past two or three seasons we're seeing it in several different spots from like some of the game's biggest stars. So that's sort of the first direction I want to tackle. Yeah, I think that obviously makes a lot of sense. Um, it is kind of interesting that I think in a lot of ways, the league kind of fought, like players kind of follow LeBron's example, whether that's good or bad. You know, I think there's some elements of both, but LeBron doing that, every you know, a lot of other players said, well, maybe I can do that too. And obviously we're not saying free agents never decided where they were going to end up. It's just more of that. Like we're all going to go to this one place and, you know, form our own like super team or whatever. And then now we're seeing, you know, we saw Kevin Durant go to the warriors and then go to the nets with Kyrie. Um, It's, it's one of those things that personally I don't, I think I I mean I agree with you in that players should be able to have some say and I can definitely understand like I think about Anthony Davis and how that all went down I don't I don't love how Anthony Davis presented himself and how he uh treated the organization but at the same time, the Pelicans hadn't really been good for as long as he'd been there. And he was just kind of tired of it and was just like, you know what? I I really just don't want to be here anymore. The way that he handled it wasn't great. But I think overall, I can kind of understand in some ways how he was getting frustrated. But I also think that there's something to be said about a player who sticks with the team that drafted him and tries to do everything in his power to make it a winner and make it, you know, make the championships happen with a team that gave him a chance. I mean, I think about Damian Lillard too. Like he's stuck with Portland through thick and thin. Would I blame Damian Lillard if he left at this point? No, but the, but the big reason for that is because he has done everything that he could do in order to try to bring Portland to the top. And they just have never been able to get enough talent around them to where they can realistically compete for a championship. And when you have a player of Damian Lillard's caliber, I think that should be, you should go for broke. You should do whatever possible in order to make trades, lure free agents, whatever else, um, if you're the organization. I mean, I respect Damian Lillard and his loyalty, and I think that that's lacking in some ways. And realistically, the the um, invention of the Supermax 
and the ability of the team that drafts these players to give them more money than anybody else could does some, um, right, helps somewhat in terms of keeping players where they are. But at the end of the day, like other teams can still give them a crap ton of money. Um, and if, if they're prioritizing winning, then they'll just go there. So yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about in terms of LeBron and Chris Bosh and and Wade kind of pioneering that. In terms of winning, like we've sung the praises of Giannis plenty of times on this podcast for doing just what you said, uh, sticking with the team that drafted him and saying like, you know, I could go somewhere else and win pretty quickly, but I'd rather like build something here. We've seen Lillard try to do it and Portland not put enough around him, but we saw Giannis rise, first of all, to a higher height than Lillard could. And a lot of that is like the uh, uncoachables, right? The the size, the athleticism. Uh, Lillard is not going to be able to play defense and rebound like Giannis. Sorry. But Milwaukee has been more able to put supporting pieces around Giannis and build something there. Not to mention having a better coach. Yeah. And I mean, look at Drew Holiday, what they did with him. They, I mean, at the time, I, I thought that they overpaid for Drew Holiday. Like, he's a great player. Don't get me wrong. But what they gave up, I was like, I mean, the, I don't think this matches up. But of course, you do those things when you have a player of, of Giannis's talent. And of course, they won the finals. They won a championship with Drew Holiday, with Giannis. And then they also just did, you know, a good job of bringing in other smaller pieces and also drafting well at the same time. So yeah, I mean, the Bucks, that's a great example of the combination of a player deciding to stick with the team that drafted him and try to build something. And then the front office making the right moves and, you know, going ahead and not necessarily mortgaging the future because the Bucks didn't do anything crazy like that, like the Nets did when they, when they got all, all those guys from the Celtics. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's a great example of the front office and the player working together in order to make, uh, you know, build a championship contending team and then doing it well enough to actually win that championship. For sure. And part of what made, I mean, to kind of circle back, part of what made Giannis's run so special is that he had built it and it had been a while since we'd seen something quite like that, where it felt like a team built up like the way they were saying was like the right way right uh whereas that used to be very commonplace now one one person i was thinking about when i was preparing for this what if was charles barkley and how he just gets roasted into oblivion on national television like weekly for not winning a championship i think lebron had to see that like 2009 2010 like wow i haven't won a championship i'm trying to chase jordan but if i don't play my cards right you know i could be the next like great without a ring and you know they're not building it in cleveland he goes to miami he takes it into his own hands if cleveland won't build a successful organization then i'll go to one uh who's the next up to do that kd right uh i think like I'm not here to say that had LeBron never gone to Miami that KD never would have left Oklahoma City, but I bet he doesn't go to Golden State. Uh, I don't think he has the 
what's a nice way to say this? I don't think he has the makeup to like leave Oklahoma City for another team where he'd have to be like the dominant force, especially in the East. If he had to compete with LeBron, I don't see him like going to New York and being like, oh yeah, it would just be like my team versus LeBron's team. Uh, but without that precedent of LeBron joining Miami to get a couple rings, quote unquote, the easy way, you know, like in a relative manner of speaking, then I don't think KD also takes the easy way out and goes to a 73 win Warriors team that had just beaten him in the previous playoffs to get his couple rings to avoid being the next great that doesn't get a ring. Um, Cade like that Warriors team is the most broken team in the history of basketball. And so I think without LeBron's precedent of going to Miami, KD doesn't join that Warriors team. And I think that would definitely make the league look a lot better. There are 30 teams in the NBA. 16 of which make the playoffs. And I feel like before LeBron went to Miami, there were reasonably like in any given year, 22 ish teams that felt like they had a shot at the playoffs. And even like the next two or three down would still just like fight for, for wins. Uh, I'm not here to say like no one was tanking, you know, but like, at least everyone seemed to constantly be like working towards something, signing good free agents or like guys that they thought could make a quick difference or whatever. Um, because it seemed reasonable for most teams, Hey, within two or three years, we could be in that like top 16. And if you make the playoffs, you have a shot, right? I think what happened when LeBron went to Miami was there became no middle ground in terms of seasonal goals for a lot of these organizations such that teams seem to go, we need to either be in the top six or bottom six. Like we, and that's those numbers are loose, but you get the idea that I'm getting at here. Teams were like, we need to have one of the best players in the league or we're not going to win. And, and not actually not just that we need to have like two of the top 10 or we're not going to win. And if we don't have that, then we may as well tank. And that created this huge like imbalance in the league uh, where you have like where it's harder to see things like what we saw in Milwaukee because teams are more hesitant to hold on to players for longer when they, you know, think, well, like, let's just say Milwaukee was like, oh, we haven't won with Giannis yet and he's a great player, but our you know, there are all these other good teams and we got to get something for them so that some other, we can draft some other superstar to win in five years or whatever. You know, and I just picked Milwaukee because they're one of the more recent, like homegrown winning teams. Actually, they are the mo more recent one. Uh, I'm looking at like how, I mean, you mentioned the Brooklyn trade, the infamous Brooklyn trade in 2013, where they just put like, everything into that one season in 2013 and they draft or they traded for Darren Williams, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Joe Johnson, all like 30 plus um, some with injuries uh, in the, of the past like couple years and giving up draft picks for the next like eight years to do so and screwing themselves forever, you know, until they, until like a couple years ago. You know, uh, 
And if we look at the other side of that, Boston trades Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett because they're going, okay, well, now there's this monster in Miami. And rather than like hold on to Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and continue to, and Rondo for that matter, and build through the draft and try to stay competitive, we're going to hit the reset button. And we've seen team after team after team hit that same reset button. Look at uh, look at Toronto, for example. I mean, they gambled and it worked, but they said, "What? Well, we're not winning with DeRozan. Let's uh, let's just try it out one year with Kawhi. Worst case scenario, we rebuild. Best case scenario, we win this year, and it worked. But that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. They felt that pressure to like go for broke right away or just give up. Uh, it can't be we have something good. Let's see if that ends up working out eventually. I think if LeBron stays in Cleveland, a lot of teams stay together or at the very least don't trade their star players as uh, as quickly. And so maybe we see a championship around 20 to 2012 from the Celtics or something. Maybe the Bulls compete and win a championship like 2019, 2020. If you figure they would have never felt pressure to trade Jimmy Butler. And he could have developed there and let and build something around him there. And I'm not just picking that because it's Jimmy Butler, but like that's an example of a team trading a, a promising young player because they felt, you know, well, we're not competing this year. We may as well. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. That's in my mind how LeBron has shaped the NBA. Yeah. I think, I mean, the NBA for quite a long time now, I think, has been about, I mean, re- realistically, like for the past few decades, has been a, about like these different dynasties and like the, you know, these really great teams that won multiple championships together and went to even more finals than that. Um, but a lot of those were just really well-built teams, teams that drafted well, teams that recognized good talent and traded for them, et cetera. Like, I think more than any other um, sport, that's what we've seen is like NBA teams kind of going on these long runs of, of dominance. And it's one thing for that, um, like looking at that, because sure, like, teams like the Bulls in the 90s or then like the Lakers um, or like the Spurs after that. These were teams that were, you know, making the finals or like at least really good uh, locks to make at least the conference finals or whatever pretty much every season. But you didn't, you still like didn't see teams just tank. Like, like you said, like they weren't just tanking. As soon as LeBron, Wash and Wade joined together in Miami, and then granted they didn't win their first year. They, they lost to the Mavericks, but the fact that they went ahead and made the finals their first year, like just proved this, like this works. And not only that, but then of course they won back to back championships there. All of a sudden it's like, well, if, if teams are just going to do this and as long as Miami's going to be like this, then like, what what chance do we have? Um, now I will say, part of this is like about the Heat, but a big part of this is about LeBron, and like you got to give LeBron credit where it's due. 
there's a reason why he made eight final NBA Finals appearances in a row. And it's because he's one of the greatest players ever. Um, you can't you can't look at that and be like, oh, it's just because of the super team. Like, sure, LeBron went to Miami and created that super team. But then he came back to Cleveland and then they went to the finals four straight years after that. So like you can't you can't say it's only the super team. You have to give LeBron some credit. I think that kind of transitions a little bit into um my seg or my part of this where I focus on what if LeBron stayed, you know, didn't go to Miami and stayed in Cleveland. So just to do a little bit of um trip down memory lane for LeBron's career. So obviously he gets drafted number one overall to Cleveland. And the first three years, they improved their record every single year, eventually making the playoffs and then the finals where they got swept by the Spurs. But then the following year, the Cavs go 66 and 16. LeBron wins MVP. They lose to the Magic in the conference finals. So it's not like the, it's not like the Cavs have a bad team at this point. Obviously LeBron is like the main the main guy, but they've got pieces around them. I mean, they're a very successful regular season team. They just don't quite make it all the way. Then the next year, he wins MVP again. The Cavaliers have the best record in the league. Then they lose to the Celtics in the second round. Cleveland boos him off the court. And that's the last like then and then he makes the decision and goes to Miami after that. So he never, you know, he never succeeded, never won the championship there, but he got close. He made it to the finals, he made it to the conference finals, got eliminated in the second round to the Celtics. Like these are obviously not successful seasons because they're not they didn't win the championship, but LeBron did basically improve their record every single year, and they had a good team at the point that he went, you know, that he went to Miami. But if he stays in Cleveland, right? Let's say he doesn't do the decision. He doesn't do the whole like television special, whatever. He just resigns on a max deal with Cleveland and says, you know what? Cleveland is home. I'm in it for the long haul. All of a sudden, his legacy and his reputation never take a nosedive because before that, everybody like loved LeBron. He was the kid who, you know, he was always going to destined to be a superstar, was in his hometown, you know, or at least as close as it's going to be, you know, in Ohio. He's obviously an amazing player, super young, talented, charismatic, all of this. And then he signs like a long-term deal to stay in Cleveland. And then you don't have all the fallout of the decision. Um, of that super controversial thing. You don't have the not one, not two, not three. Like, I think LeBron is kind of one of the more polarizing figures in sports. And a big reason for that is this decision that he made to go to Miami. When you talk about his legacy, sure, he's going to go down as one of the greatest players of all time. But is he going to, like, there are people who love him and there are people who hate him. I think more than pretty much most other NBA players that have ever played the game because of all of the stuff that we've been talking about, because the league is quote broken because of it, all of the rest of the stuff and because of the way that he handled it and, and all of that. So that's, that's part of it. 
especially if you if you put into context this whole uh, LeBron versus Jordan debate. You know, Jordan won all of all of those uh, championships with the Bulls. You know, with one team, like he made it happen. He never lost the finals. All of this with LeBron, like you wouldn't have the whole LeBron had to go and create his own super team in order to start winning championships. Um, he would have stayed in Cleveland. And like, let's be honest, I don't actually know if LeBron would have the same number of championships that he does now if he stayed. In fact, I think he probably wouldn't, which in some ways is sad because it just shows that the super team method actually works in terms of the Cavaliers. They never would have gotten all of those number one picks. So they wouldn't have drafted Kyrie. They wouldn't, we, they wouldn't have gotten Andrew Wiggins, which means Kevin Love would have never gone there. They wouldn't have Tristan Thompson. So a big core of that championship team that they did have wouldn't be there. So then my my thought goes to, well, if LeBron decided to stay in Cleveland for the long haul, I think it probably would have taken, maybe he would have went won one or two um, with like the core that they had and just like adding some, you know, players here or there, like some role players, whatever. But then I think about what if any like bigger free agents or um, guys who got traded in that era ended up going to Cleveland instead of wherever they went. Some guys that got traded um, during that time, James Harden got traded, Dwight Howard, Iguodala, Chris Paul, Carmelo. Those are some big names. And like, it's kind of interesting to think, what if LeBron didn't join his banana boat buddy in Miami, but instead his buddy Chris Paul, instead of going to the Clippers, he gets traded to the Cavs. Or what if uh, Carmelo, instead of getting traded to the Knicks from the Nuggets, what if he gets traded to the Cavs? Then all of a sudden you have Carmelo, like, you know, peak Carmelo, peak LeBron. And I mean, we're talking about like front offices doing things the right way or the wrong way. With the Bucks, we were talking about how they went ahead and traded for Drew Holiday. Um, this that would have been a great example of Cleveland being like, you know what? We've got LeBron here for the long term. Let's like go ahead and and you know trade all these pieces, whatever, to get one of these guys to be LeBron's running mate. That you know, if Carmelo or Chris Paul goes there, who knows? Maybe they do win, you know, multiple championships with the two of them together. But then you think, okay, what if that doesn't happen? Cleveland gives LeBron the Damian Lillard treatment and doesn't ever get him any help. Then, like I said, maybe he wins one or two. But then, honestly, and this might cause some controversy, but maybe LeBron just kind of kind of has a Russell Westbrook type of career. Obviously, better statistically, but at the same time, I mean, Mister Triple Double. Even like in that last season, he was basically playing point guard for the Cavs at that point. He was getting close to averaging that triple-double, but he was averaging like 30-something points a game, um, like eight rebounds, eight assists, a block and a steal, like insane numbers. And maybe he, you know, he wins MVP a few more times, but never really achieves that uh, team success 
But statistically, I really don't think that whether he stayed in Cleveland or Miami, it would have changed that much because LeBron's always going to dominate. Um, the real difference is kind of selling his legacy or his reputation to win those championships. And you could argue that if he goes back to Cleveland um, or when he went back to Cleveland and ended up winning that championship with them, the slate could be like wiped clean or whatever. But still, while that's like a nice story, it doesn't really erase the events of what had happened. And I think a big part of the reason why he did decide to go back to Cleveland is because he's just trying to rebuild his legacy. Because at that point, um, with these types of players, that is a factor. They they start to to read the the articles about comparing them to all time greats and like what is their legacy going to be. And somebody like LeBron and his ego, like you already know that, and like his ego is one of the things that makes him great, right? But like his ego was not going to let him just be like, you know what? I I don't want to be the villain. I don't want to be the bad guy. I want to be, you know, universally celebrated like like Michael Jordan was. And the only way I can do that is is going back to Cleveland. So all these are just kind of interesting thoughts to, you know, um, to consider would any of these big trades have happened where these big names ended up going to Cleveland instead of elsewhere. Um, and if they didn't, and LeBron just stayed in Cleveland for the long term, maybe he wins a couple of championships, but when the one championship that he did win in Cleveland, none of his like major running mates would have been there at that point. So just interesting stuff to think about. I think where it gets tough for me is Dan Gilbert is a notoriously bad decision maker, uh, bad owner. Uh, we we could see uh, LeBron not getting help his entire like first stint in Cleveland, which is why he left, like you said. Uh, and we we talked about it before, like. Cleveland wasn't building anything, so he went and built. We also see that when LeBron left Miami, they had a growing Kyrie Irving there. So, like, while I agree with your with what you said about like the narrative and like his legacy and how that leads him back to Cleveland, does he go back if they don't have this blooming like superstar type talent at point guard in Cleveland already? Like, if they were sitting there with Anthony Bennett and Andrew Wiggins, does he go back to Cleveland? <laughs> Uh, and Tristan Thompson, shout out my man. But uh, I'm looking at it like, you know, he left because nothing was being built. And I think you're right. If uh, he doesn't leave, then there's no like accountability. You know, uh, if he just sits there and balls out every year, then what is making Dan Gilbert go, wow, we really need to change something around here. We're selling all these tickets and all these jerseys and, I don't really give a shit if we win or not. Like he probably does get the Damian Lillard treatment. Uh, and and my first reaction to that idea was like, well, LeBron is like an all-time elite talent. He'd find a way to win a couple, right? Maybe, maybe you could argue that he had to go to Miami to learn how to win because Wade had been there before successfully. I might add, um, and LeBron, while while the best player on the team, was not 
or didn't have to be the verbal leader. He didn't have to be the most experienced player on the team because Wade had that championship pedigree at that point. And LeBron was now in a situation where he could go ball out, but he wasn't the one piece that had to make that machine go night in and night out. And not that he had a lot of bad games, but he could take games relative off, like relatively off, and let Wade and Bosch do a little more lifting, you know, so on and so forth. If he doesn't take that four-year vacation to South Beach, does he have what it takes mentally to win the championship? Because if there's no big second piece like Wade and there's no, like, experience there, you know, how does he... How does he cross that threshold? That's what's tough for me. And so it, I think it would be really easy to go down that slope of like, you know, as you described, putting up these monstrous MVP numbers and being an all-time individual great without, maybe without winning a single championship. In this like alternate universe or whatever, who knows how, how everything would have, would have shaken out. I do think that even if he didn't go to Miami, and he like stayed in Cleveland and they weren't giving him that help, then he probably would have left at some point. Credit where credit's due. LeBron's an amazing player. Um, one of the all-time greats. But there were a lot of consequences to his actions that probably he didn't foresee when he uh, when he made that decision. And that decision just kind of created shockwaves around the rest of the league that we're still feeling today. And it's probably going to, impact like you said in the next collective bargaining bargaining agreement is is going to you know shape that conversation and and how the league works and how you know, the or in the relationship between players and and franchises so it's all all very interesting stuff absolutely and we'd love to hear your opinions on this let us know what you think would have happened or what the league would have looked like or how many rings lebron would have had etc on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Mike and Dave Pod. We'd love to hear your opinions on that. But with that being said, I think we've spent enough time pondering what the league would have looked like, what LeBron would have looked like. And in our next segment, we're going to think about some other, like, what could have been <laughs> in, our, in our newest top five. So stick around. All right. And we're back, and it's time for our newest edition of Top 5. This time around, we're doing our Top 5 Could-Have-Beens. So what we're looking at is like a team or a player that, for one reason or another, whether it was that person's fault, whether it was that team's fault, just didn't quite live up to expectations, or you know, expectations were not met, the hype was not lived up to, etc., etc., so, Dave, why don't you go ahead and kick us off with your top five could have been? Oh, and a reminder: neither of us have seen each other's, or neither of us have seen or heard each other's top fives. So this is not coordinated at all. For sure. So we might have one or two that are the same. So, but we'll see. So coming in at number five, I've got Brandon Roy, obviously of the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, he was a very talented, just naturally talented basketball player. Uh, who was an all-star uh, career was on the rise His trajectory was um, was very high but unfortunately he had uh, knee problems in both of his knees where he basically w once he had to retire at the age of 27 he didn't have 
like any cartilage left in his knees, um, which my mom actually dealt with like not having any cartilage in her knee and she was like hobbling around. Um, so I can only imagine trying to play basketball that way must've been pretty difficult, but this is a guy who could have potentially been, um, you know, the best player on a championship winning team. He had that kind of talent. Um, and he was just starting to really, of uh, you know, find his groove, um, and was going to be a, a, a sought after free agent. Um, but then, of course, ended up retiring. He did come back for five games with the Timberwolves a few years later. Once his, uh, like the cartilage in his knees had come back and everything, he had some procedures done. But then, unfortunately, he had a season-ending knee injury, <laughs> and uh, that was it for him. So that's Brandon Roy. He comes in at number five. Number four, it's the 2007 Patriots, who went 17-1. and So close to having that undefeated season. Uh, of course, the Dolphins did have an undefeated season as well in 1972, where they went 14 and 0 in the regular season, 17 and 0 overall, including winning the Super Bowl. But the Patriots would have done it, um, would have done 18 games, um, and like therefore like surpassing the Dolphins. Uh, but they just couldn't quite get there. And if they had done it, they would have been seen as one of as not one of the best. NFL team of all time. Um, but they just couldn't couldn't quite get it done. So that's coming in at number four. Number three, Barry Sanders. This is a guy who is probably one of the most naturally gifted running backs we've ever seen in the NFL. He was on pace to break the all-time rushing yards record when he retired at the age of 30. And it wasn't due to injuries. It wasn't due to... Um, other commitments or anything. He just decided, nope, I'm done. Some people have said, well, maybe it was because he was playing on the Lions. <laughs> and I think he only, like, he never made it far in the playoffs at all. Just like as an individual talent, he was one of the best there ever, there has ever been. And if he hadn't retired, he probably would have had four or five seasons left in him at like peak level and probably would have gained enough rushing yards to where even Emmett Smith wouldn't have been able to catch him um, later on when Emmett was playing. So we could have been saying Barry Sanders is unquestionably the best running back of all time, but due to his early retirement, we didn't end up seeing that happening. So that's Barry Sanders coming in at number three. Number two, Ted Williams. So Ted Williams, for those of you who don't know, one of the better baseball players of all time. Uh, played for the Red Sox for 19 seasons in the 40s, 50s, um, and like 1960, I think, is when he retired. Um, but the thing about Ted Williams is he missed almost five years of his playing career due to serving in the military, uh, first in World War II and then in the Korean War. Uh, based on his his numbers and other, um, other seasons, he could have potentially passed Babe Ruth's home run record at that time, although it was before Hank Aaron, and had enough RBIs to where he probably would be the um, the all-time leader in RBIs even today. Um, that's how good he was. He was one of the best hitters ever. Um, he's the last guy to hit 400 in a season. Who knows what could have ended up, ended up happening, but we could have been looking at him and saying he is, if not the... It's not like top three, maybe even the greatest player to ever live. 
but because of his military service, we never know if that could have happened. Before we get to number one, we've got a couple of honorable mentions. Um, Sandy Koufax is one, um, the all-time Dodger legend. Um, he retired at the age of 30 as well, just like Barry Sanders. Um, but unlike Barry Sanders, it's because he had um, major arm issues where nobody knew that, that he was dealing with all of this. But after they lost in the 1966 World Series, he had to uh, unfortunately retire. And it's crazy. He had a 12-year career and he retired at the age of 30. So yes, at 18 years old, he was dominating hitters at the major league level. Um, one of the best pitchers the game has ever seen could have gone down as you know, top three, maybe even the best, depending on how he aged over time. But he had to retire at the peak of his powers, but ultimately the um, the pain in his arm was just too much to overcome. And then another honorable mention was Sean Taylor, who had a great start to his career as a safety for um, Washington, uh, made the Pro Bowl, you know, was a really exciting, super hard-hitting, fun-to-watch young talent, and unfortunately was murdered um, in 2007. So um, RIP to him, and it would have been great to see what he could have accomplished in his career uh, in the NFL after his life was tragically cut short. Now on to number one. And the reason why I picked this in particular, it's because it's personal. Um, so if any of you are listening to this, you've probably heard me talk about the Braves at some point. Um, I'm a huge Braves fan. Yes, us winning the World Series last year was amazing. I'm still reveling in it. Um, but my number one could have been is the Brave is the Atlanta Braves organization from 1991 to 2005, where they won the division 14 straight times, which is a record in any sport, by the way. And yet, how many World Series did they win? They won once in 1995. They made it to uh, to five World Series in that time. They only won once. If they had played up to their potential and actually clutched up, then they could have been viewed as like one as potentially the greatest. Yeah, that could have been the greatest run um, of all time um, in Major League Baseball. Of course, there there have been teams like the Yankees with Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, all that. But that's like, you know, a hundred years ago at this point, or like 90 years ago at this point. Um, but they could have been viewed as one of the greatest baseball teams of all time, uh, you know, sustained excellence, all of that. But unfortunately they were only able to win that one world series. And I look at it and say like, what could have been, you know, um, they could have won three, four, five, six world series with the caliber of, of talent that they had arguably the best trio of starting pitchers ever. In baseball with Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, Greg Maddox, uh, with the position players that they had, with the Hall of Fame manager and Bobby Cox, who could potentially be one of the reasons why they only won one World Series, but I'm not going to shade Bobby like that. Um, but yeah, it's 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 sad to it's sad to see. At least they did win one, but I just think that they could have done so much more. And for me. Like it is my list, so I get to choose. I know it's probably not as straightforward as some of the other ones, but for me, it really is what could have been um, 
because I could have experienced so many more championships when I was a kid and, sh- and cheering for the Braves. Um, unfortunately, it just didn't work out that way. But at least we won last year, so that's something. But but still, that's that's my number one um, could have been. I like that list. Yeah, the, the Patriots won't hurt me. Yeah, <laughs> I already know how I am with Tom Brady. Uh, and that one just... I mean, Brady's the GOAT, you know. There's no debate about it, but that that one's tough. It's not only is it like the one thing that he didn't do, but it, the odds of anyone doing it moving forward are just minuscule, if that. And so, you know, you have that once, really once in a lifetime opportunity to do that. And then you just can't get the job done there. And that's, that's tough. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to one of my honorable mentions just to like, because it responds to your top five as well. Brandon Roy was one of my honorable mentions as well as Greg Oden, just because the trailblazers were dealing with that, uh, misfortune at the same time where you have these two guys that are like, Oh, Brandon Roy is like the next great perimeter scorer in the NBA. Oh, Greg Oden is like the, the revolution of the dominant big man. And then they play like. 40 games together or something i'm just like that sucks (laughs) like you know you draft well you 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 identify talent but whoever was like doing their physicals i hope he got fired (laughs) because oh uh uh-uh but going to my list at number five i had drazen petrovich now this is a sniper extraordinaire of the mid to late 80s going into like the early 90s. Uh, his number uh, three is actually retired by the Nets. But this was one of the best three-point shooters that we've seen. One of the nicest strokes from the three-point line. Uh, a career 44% three-point shooter. And... He was uh, actually killed in a car accident in Germany in uh, 1993 at the age of 29. Shooting is like the main thing in basketball that doesn't really go away with age. If anything, it tends to get better until you hit like 36 or so. But like 32 is like a great time for, for shooters. That's usually like around the time they have their best shooting performances. And I'm not saying that Drazen Petrovic is going to be one of the best players of all time, but he'd gain a lot more recognition as one of the all-time great three-point shooters had he been able to play some more years to cement that legacy. Top five for sure had he had that kind of time. We'd be talking about Steph, Clay, Ray, and Drazen. So I'm going to put him at number five. At number four, I'm not going to talk much about him because... He was one of your honorable mentions, Sean Taylor. Uh, in 2007, uh, before the season, which ended up being his last season, he played nine games in, Sports Illustrated had rated him the hardest-hitting player in the NFL. And just a reminder, Ray Lewis was also playing in that same NFL. Not only that, but that year, at the time that he died, he was tied for second in the league in interceptions. So we're talking about a safety that can do both of the major elements of playing safety. He can uh, he can come down, make big tackles. He can also play the ball in the air. And four years into his career, he looked 
to be one of the promising safeties in the NFL. And had he had that longer career, you know, we, we talk about Troy Polamalu, Ed Reed, that generation also would have had Sean Taylor. I mean, when we did our all-time NFL fantasy draft back in episodes 12 and 13, specifically 13, when we did our defense, our first two safeties off the board were Troy Polamalu and Ed Reed. And then after that, we ended up picking up Ronnie Lott and John Lynch to round that out. I mean, I'll go ahead and say I would have taken Sean Taylor over uh, John Lynch, assuming, you know, had he had that time to cement his legacy as an all-time safety. And I don't see any reason why he wouldn't have been, which would have made him top four all-time in his position. According to us, at least. Yeah. But our word is law here on the Mike and Dave podcast. Exactly. Number three. Monica Sellis. Monica Sellis was like coming out of the gate hard um, as a as a young female tennis player, right? Uh, she had won eight Grand Slam titles before her twentieth birthday, which is crazy. Uh, in nine, she was a she was like the main rival of Steffi Graf. And for those of you like that don't watch that much tennis, basically in women's tennis, there's Serena Williams. Then for a long time, there's nothing. Uh, but basically, Steffi Graf is number two. And unless you really want to argue, it's Martina Navatilova, and I don't. Uh, I think Steffi Graf is number two. But Monica Seles was like her big rival early on. Seles beat her in the French Open, and Seles was only 16 at the time. Like This girl was balling out of her mind. In 1993, a psychotic... Steffi Graf fan ran down from the stands and stabbed her in the back with a nine inch blade. Now she survived uh, and recovered enough to like kind of play tennis. She made this comeback where she won the Australian open in 96 for her ninth grand slam title, but that was it. So she finished with nine despite having eight before turning 20. So, you know, it didn't like, she's still alive. It didn't like kill her, but it, completely derailed her like rise to tennis superstardom had that not happened she probably fills in uh like that three spot uh in all-time tennis players number two grant hill so the thing about grant hill is he still had a good career he's still a hall of famer and he's still remembered positively as a basketball player but this is what could have been. And and this man coming out of college as one of Duke's greatest all-time players was supposed to be like the guy that like inherited the league from Jordan. He was supposed to be the next best thing. There were people that thought, and these people weren't all that few and far between, that he'd be like around Jordan's level, if not better. This the sky was like I'd say the sky was the limit for Grant Hill, but we thought he'd go past that. Uh, he was the the new like edition of the point forward. Uh, he was leading the Pistons. You heard that right. The Pistons had a good player. Uh, in points, rebounds, and assists, he did that three times, which really was not happening at that time uh, in the 90s. Uh, Co-rookie of the year with uh, Jason Kidd. This is like a... Uh... A guy getting 20-plus points a game, 7-plus assists a game, 6-plus rebounds a game. And 
eventually like ankle injuries just like stripped him of that athleticism and a lot of that mobility. Uh, he couldn't move up and down the court the same way. And actually in 2003, he was having ankle surgery and complications from that almost proved fatal, uh, which is, I mean, to me, it's kind of crazy to think that like you go from ankle surgery to like a fatal like complication, but yeah, he almost didn't come out of that, but you know, he was able to make a comeback where he was still a, an efficient player, you know, averaging like 12, 13, 14 points a game in there on fairly competitive teams. But it, the fact that he was looked at as being an all-time great, as in like top five-ish players of all time, to not really top 75 of all time, like that's a that's a tough drop. Honorable mention, I mentioned Brandon Roy and Greg Oden. You mentioned Barry Sanders. I also had him. And then Bo Jackson uh, just didn't play as much football as we would have loved to see. And the reason I only had him as an honorable mention despite that is like, weirdly, I feel like that doesn't really impact our perception of Bo Jackson. I feel like we say Bo Jackson and it's just like, oh yeah, that dude was deadly. He was elite. You know, he played like four seasons in the NFL, but we're still like, oh yeah, the man, the myth, the legend, Bo Jackson, electric. But then I think of Grant Hill, but I don't think we think of his Pistons days. I think we think of like, oh yeah, that like kind of older, like veteran dude that would like hit corner threes, you know? <laughs> so so that was sort of where I drew that distinction. But my number one, and I honestly could have gone either way between Grant Hill and this guy at one and two, but my number one is Derek Rose, who has carved out for himself a fairly long career. Uh, you know, But that is like in spite of the multiple ACL, MCL injuries that completely stripped him of what made him so freaking special. When I say elite athleticism, I don't think that does it justice. This is one of the most athletic players that we've seen in NBA history. At that point guard position, uh, the things that he could do above the rim, like I think now we look at like Russell Westbrook, but Derrick Rose had that athleticism that we see in Russell Westbrook and was a better player. I'm sorry, he's not getting triple doubles, but he's his play translates to winning. It translates to playoff pushes in his prime. This is a man that won MVP in 2011 at age 22, the youngest player to ever win MVP in the NBA. He was making the Bulls relevant, uh, leading those like nice little teams with like Carlos Boozer, Joachim Noah, which it's, it's funny to say, like Joachim Noah. Oh, and Lou Dang while we're at it. That was like the, the Chicago squad. But... I think Grant Hill more commonly gets like the, oh yeah, he would have been an all-time great. Derrick Rose would have been a freaking all-time great had he not gotten injured. Um, I, when I look at like the best point guards to ever do it, absent an injury, I don't see what keeps Derrick Rose off a top five list for me. But to see him stripped of that athleticism by injury and just like be reduced and he, you know, respect to Derrick Rose and what he was able to do with the Knicks uh, like last year and the year before, even though it was like facing off against the Hawks unsuccessfully, I might add. Uh, you know, I respect his game. I respect the way he's been able to adapt. And that like mental state tells me he would have adapted his game anyway as the athleticism started to dwindle. I, 
I'm confident he would have led a team to a championship or two, multiple MVPs, and his place among the all-time great point guards in, in the NBA. So just to run that back from five to one, I had Drazen Petrovic at number five, Sean Taylor at number four, Monica Sellis at number three, Grant Hill at number two, and Derek Rose at number one. All right. I like that. I think, well, first of all, I never heard that story about Monica Sellis, but that's like crazy. <laughs> like, I don't know how I'd never heard of that before, but getting stabbed in the back. I mean, literally, that's like, that's, that's horrible. Um, I'm glad that she ended up surviving. And like, that is pretty cool that she ended up winning one more major. So I'm glad that she was able to do that. But still, that's, that is pretty sad. Um, the rest of them. It is interesting because literally like Grant Hill, I do think about just like that veteran. I was like, oh, he's fine. Uh, but like there's nothing crazy about him. Um, it kind of reminds me of like Harrison Barnes too, of like the the expectations that were put on him to like right away. And then he ended up being like a nice player. He's still like fine, but he never ended up being as good as everybody thought. But that's just because he just wasn't as good as everyone thought. <laughs> Grant Hill, unfortunately, had that um, had that surgery that went wrong. But oh, and just to, um, I don't think I ran my top five from five to one. At number five, I had Brandon Roy. Number four, the two thousand seven Patriots that couldn't quite go undefeated. Number three, Barry Sanders. Number two, Ted Williams, and number one, the Braves from nineteen ninety one to two thousand five. Yeah, so that's each of our lists of our top five could have beens. Um, let us know your thoughts on those and if there are any ones that we missed, especially if they're in like other sports and, and all of that, because um, I think that these are interesting stories. And also, like, I think it's good to remember the players who would have been great, but, you know, due to unfortunate circumstances or whatever the case might be, didn't quite end up living up to their potential. I think it's cool to remember those players as well. So definitely let us know um, at Mike and Dave pod on social media, but that's going to wrap up um, this top five segment. And when we come back, we're going to get into the hot seat and the fun fact. All right, we're back and it's time to get into the hot seat. Mike, who do we have on the hot seat for this week? Well, this is a nice little blast from the past in episode one on this podcast, our very first hot seat winner was an exchange between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher. On episode 30, we have an exchange from Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher. Maybe you've seen this already. You probably have. There's all this stuff. Yeah. Unless you've been living under a rock, then you've seen about all the like NIL, the name, image, and likeness, and uh, college athletes being able to profit off of their, like, name, image, and likeness, go figure. And I would say Nick Saban implied that Texas A&M just bought all of their recruits. But imply is not a strong enough word because he just straight up said it. Here's a quote from Nick Saban uh, addressing the whole like recruiting situation. We were second in recruiting last year. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team. Made a deal for name, image, likeness. We didn't buy one player, all right? But I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it. It's tough. And, of course, Jimbo sees this and starts talking about 
rumors and the deals and everything and called them clown acts and said that they were irresponsible as hell. So we've got more uh, beef between Jimbo and Nick Saban to make sure they're just not on good terms anymore. Jimbo said he like, has no interest in, in salvaging a relationship with Nick Saban. He's like, yeah, we're not talking anymore. Deleting my number, all this. Not to mention Nick Saban going after Jackson State for their signing of Travis Hunter. Uh, saying that they paid him a million dollars. So, of course, Deion Sanders had to respond to that. Coach Prime, my guy. So Dion responds to this and says, you best believe I'll address that lie, Coach Saban told. I was awakened by my, by my son that sent me the article stating that we paid Travis Hunter a million to play at Jackson State. We as a people don't have to pay our people to play with our people. Quite the hot seat candidate here on all this NIL stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those times where the hot seat just picked itself. Um, I know that a lot of this happened a couple of weeks ago. It actually, I think a lot of it broke like the day before our last episode released. And I remember saying to Mike, like, dang, I really wish this had happened sooner because this would have been amazing to have on the hot seat for this week. But thankfully, the saga has just continued long enough to where they're still making comments about it this week, so it um we can still talk about it. Uh, but yeah, I think, I mean, this is one of those things. That it just it has it all. It has the drama. It has like the for like the coach and it's and his like prodigy. It has a very controversial, um, new like rule or like aspect of the game. Um, it has like back and you know going back and forth in these press conferences and name calling and going back on their word or not going back on their word, but like trying to like make it sound better after all of this, you know, stuff has been, uh, after the media has been, you know, exploiting this for all it's worth. Um, I just remember watching Jimbo's response and him just being like, it's despicable. It's despicable. <laughs> just like, you know, Jimbo, what you did to the Florida state's program was despicable too, but you know, <laughs> you're nobody's talking about that. Um, I'm just, I'm a little butthurt. It's fun. Um, but yeah, I, this is just kind of very entertaining to watch as a college football fan, especially one that doesn't really, I mean, I'm not an Alabama or a Texas A&M fan. I obviously don't like Nick Saban because I hate that Alabama wins every year. It's boring. And obviously I don't like Jimbo Fisher because he left Florida State in his state of ruin um, that we still haven't recovered from. But I will say, I think both of them have a point to some degree, um, just because, yeah, I think this whole NIL stuff, it is like the wild, wild west, and no one really knows what the rules are and like how to navigate it because it's so new. But at the same time, Nick Saban, like, you don't, you're not in a position where you have to start calling these people out. Like you're still Alabama. You're still number two in recruiting. <laughs> like, I'm sorry that one other team was number one. You're fine. How many times we referenced that five-star recruits getting everybody, like getting Nick Saban water on the bench. Like Alabama's fine. Um, t You know, Jimbo has always been a good recruiter for, for what that's worth at Florida state. That's one of the reasons why um, they ended up winning that championship and were good for a long time is because Jimbo is a really good recruiter. So 
you know, it's, I, I'm not really going to pick a side per se. I think this is one of those things where it's 100% like the, the best kind of hot seat candidate that we have on this show. And it's just kind of fun to watch these guys go back and forth. It's like, it's sports version of like one of those like dramas or soap operas or whatever. Um, and Jimbo and Nick Saban are like the leading, uh, the leading characters. So it's pretty, pretty interesting to see. And it did just kind of work out where like, you know, if it had happened earlier, I mean, that would have been tough. Cause I still wanted to do the, the Pat smear campaign, the throwing Patrick Beverly on the hot seat. So best of both worlds. We got to do both. Uh, but this had to be mentioned at some point. Get you a podcast who can do both. <laughs> we got your Patrick Beverly. We got your Nick Saban and Jimbo twice. Hey, maybe episode 60 or something and they'll be back. Who knows? You know, we are a podcast that can do both. We can do a lot of things here. We can give you entertaining hot seats and top fives and what could have beens. We can also give you a fun fact every episode, courtesy of Dave. I'm Dave's Fun Fact. What's our fun fact for this episode? Hey, well, I appreciate that introduction as always, kind sir. Alrighty. Fun fact for this episode. It's a doozy. So I think a lot of the time on this on this segment, I preface this by saying, you know, I was thinking about X. And that led me <laughs> to look up Y. So that led me to think. What if I did a fun fact about actual thoughts? Freaking inception over here. <laughs> so I found this kind of hard to believe slash very intriguing. Our brains produce as many as 50,000 thoughts per day, which seems like a lot, right? That's one part of it. But what I found even more interesting is that 95% of them are repeated daily because what that, what those are is like what our mindset and what our beliefs and how we see the world is like shapes those thoughts that we have. So 95% of all the thoughts that we have, we just continue to have over and over again because that's how we see the world and like part of our routines and all of that stuff. So there's literally only like between yesterday and today, only 5% of the things that you've thought of or thought about are different than what you, than what you thought before. And you said 50,000 thoughts? As many as 50,000 thoughts per day. Yeah. I mean, 5% of 50,000 is still like 2,500. So that's still like a decent amount of new thoughts. Like I'm glad that I'm keeping it that fresh at least, you know, like, because I'm sure of the like other 47,500 thoughts, 46,000 of them are just me looking at people going, what the hell? <laughs> what are you doing? Or like, I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> Tired. <laughs> it's time to go to sleep. <laughs> so to bust out the handy dandy calculator on the Mike and Dave podcast. Hey, this is, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Mike is the, is the math guy here. Okay. There are 86,400 seconds in a day. Okay. So that would be more seconds than there are thoughts if the, if we're going with the 50,000. But let's say we sleep eight hours, right? 
Now we're at 57,600 seconds that we'd be awake. Now we're, that's basically like, you know, if you say, oh, I slept in or like, you know, whatever. Um, maybe you sleep for nine hours. I don't know. It's basically a thought a second while you're awake. It's kind of wild. Food for thought or food for 50,000 thoughts. Well, that's a, that is a fun fact. I hope you all have enjoyed that fun fact. I hope that gives your brain one more thing to think about as it's doing its 50,000 thoughts worth of thinking every day, <laughs> you know, telling your eyes to blink and whatever. But I think that'll just about wrap up episode 30 of the Mike and Dave podcast. Uh, thanks for listening. As always, feel free to interact with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mike and Dave pod for the third time that we've shouted that out today. Uh, but let us know your top five could have been. Let us know how you felt about the the LeBron thing uh, had he not gone to Miami. And in the segment, what if in general, like, do you like that segment? Is it, Are there future what ifs that you'd like for us to tackle or future top fives that you'd like for us to tackle? The only way you can let us know is by interacting with us on social. Unless you know us personally. And then you can just like text us or whatever, but actually just use our social media anyway. Um, and as always, if you have a couple of extra minutes or even like a few seconds, because it really doesn't take that long, uh, make sure to leave us a five star reviewer rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. We would appreciate that. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks where we're going to do one of our favorite things to do, which is a mock draft because NBA draft season is right around the corner. So make sure to keep an eye out for that one um, and make sure that you're subscribed to us as well. So you don't miss out on, on that episode or any of the other episodes we're, we're going to be putting out. Yep, that episode will be coming out June 17th, but until then, this has been Mike, this has been Dave and you've been listening to the Mike and Dave podcast. <laughs>